You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Dr. Kenneth Whitwer. He's an associate professor of molecular and comparative pathobiology and neurology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. His research focuses on extracellular vesicles, sometimes called exosomes, RNA-mediated regulation, biomarker discovery, and therapeutic modulation of innate and intrinsic defenses. So, Dr. Whitwer, aka Ken, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. Uh, glad to be here. Yeah, if you don't mind, uh, exosomes are uh, a very exciting topic to me, or extracellular vesicles. I wanted to ask you some questions about that, if that's okay. That sounds good. Okay, well, um, what uh, in particular, how is your research looking at uh, EVs and their effects? So I'm interested in uh, extracellular vesicles or EVs, uh, uh, largely because of my, my past. So when I began to uh, do some research in science um, as a beginning graduate student, uh, my interest was in HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus, um, and specifically how HIV and related viruses will infect host cells um, and how they will uh, also contribute to disease in the in the host organism. And so uh, HIV, of course, it's a it's a small um, small particle. Um, it's a particle that's released by some cells and then taken up by other cells. And it's a particle that is delimited by a uh, biological membrane. So just like all of our cells, um, the, the virus itself, um, which is made by our cells and is, uh, could be seen as even a, a, a part of the cell, something that is released by the cell, um, is going to contain this, uh, this biological membrane that determines its, uh, its ability to infect other cells. And in this sense, the HIV uh, virion, that is the, uh, the infectious particle of HIV is itself an EV. Um, it's an EV because it has the, uh, the, the lipid bilayer membrane, so this, this membrane from the host cell, um, and it's an EV in that it contains uh, uh, materials from the host cell. It also contains materials that the virus is contributing. Um, but I find that uh, the extracellular vesicle, I mean, one of the best ways to describe how extracellular vesicles work is to invoke the example of an infectious virus uh, because the virus has a, a particular set of cells that it will infect um, and it has specific effects that it exerts on the, um, 
on the recipient cell. So that's what right, so this is a this is super interesting. When a virus first infects a cell, does it have you know a lipid bilayer or is it different? I thought it just had like a protein coat, and you know the exosomes that it I guess forces the cell to put out are they very different than the original virus that infected that cell? Yeah, that's a good question. So of course we have a very wide range of viruses um, that can infect cells. Some of them indeed just have a protein coat. Um, so we could speak of enveloped. Um, those are the viruses that would have that membrane. Um, and then non-enveloped viruses. Uh, so the, the enveloped viruses, the way that they would get into a cell is by actually fusing. So the, so the two membranes, so if you think of like two big soap bubbles that if you push them together, um, they might eventually fuse so that their membranes become one. Um, and this is what happens with HIV and with uh, related enveloped viruses, they actually fuse their membranes with the recipient cell and then insert a, uh, a payload, if you will, um, of infectious material um, that can then sort of take over the recipient cell. Um, so you also asked about um, the, the EVs that might be produced by an infectious cell. And this, this too is an important question uh, because once a cell is infected, it does, uh, it, it does uh, to some extent, uh, the bidding of the virus that has, uh, has infected it. So for HIV, for example, um, you would get uh, production of the genomic RNA. So that's the genome of HIV. And you would also have production of proteins that are important for the, for the HIV uh, virus life cycle. Um, so together, these, these proteins and RNAs would be packaged into virions, the infectious virus. But in addition to those virions, the cells can also make um, a, a broad range of extracellular vesicles that would contain um, everything from zero components of the virus um, to many components of the virus, while still uh, stopping short of having the full complement of viral components that would be necessary to, uh, to infect another cell. So in that sense, you, know, you have a very broad range of, of uh, particles that can be produced by the infected cell. Wouldn't that mean that the cell is either intentionally or unintentionally broadcasting the fact that help I've been invest you know uh, attacked by a virus come eat, come kill me or come stop this thing if it didn't give off if it gave off EVs with incomplete you know viral components that rendered them ineffective wouldn't that be an alert again to the immune system of the host? That's right. That's right. So you could have uh, communication of this infected status using. Um, the EVs that the virus, or I'm sorry, that the cell would produce. Now, HIV has an interesting um, aspect to its life cycle uh, in that it can become uh, latent. Um, so the latent virus, the way that we think about a cell that is latently infected is that, uh, you know, the genome is there, the viral genome is there, but it's not doing very much. So it's not producing these proteins um, that are necessary for, you know, generating an infectious virus. Um, now, why, why would a virus want to do that? Because you would think that there would be an urge to, uh, or, or a, a tendency to replicate. Um, and in fact, that is what a lot of viruses do. Um, but HIV, and I think related viruses, are really going for the long game, where they would like to infect cells and ultimately become part of the host. Um, so if a retrovirus can get itself into the germline of the host, then it has the opportunity to be in every cell of the progeny, that is to say the next generation of that organism. Um, and so even though it might not now be replicating anymore, 
um, it it will it will it will uh, it will persist. It will and it will persist for generations. And in fact, if you look at our genomes, you will find that there are many many retro elements. Uh, some of them coming from ancient retroviruses, um, um, uh, retroviruses like HIV, I should say, um, that are that are present in in, in the genome and that actually constitute a, a very large uh, percentage of our genetic material. Yeah, I've heard like what seven percent approximately of our genetic material is endogenized retroviruses. Yeah, and so these retroviruses, you know, what are what are they doing now? Uh, so you can find mm. some organisms where. Uh, where you do have uh, uh, endogenous retroviruses, we call them. These are the retroviruses that that are transmitted through the germline um, that can uh, have the potential for replication. We don't think that the human retroviruses can do this now, the the endogenous retroviruses. However, we do know that there can be expression of some of these um, uh, viral components, so viral proteins. Um, And it may even be that in certain physiologic conditions, there would be expression of some of these viral um, um, uh, proteins that could be displayed or anchored in the, 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 the membrane, the, the lipid bilayer, um, that could actually potentiate um, the roles of extracellular vesicles in these conditions. So conditions like, um, like uh, uh, pregnancy, for example, or uh, certain cancers, there could, be, um, there could be more expression of proteins that would enable extracellular vesicles to communicate between cells. But why would... So- if a virus becomes part of our DNA, um, can it be reactivated at a later time? You know, let's say you know it happens to me and I survive the virus, and I have offspring, and it's you know gone into my germline, and my offspring have it now as part of their DNA. Are there circumstances under which all of a sudden you know my offspring cells could make more of those viruses in an active form or in some kind of form that would perform some function? So that's um, that's uh, probably you know possible it's theoretically possible if you had some recombination events um, where you know you were able to get a full complement of genes that were necessary viral genes that were necessary for this replication um, then you could potentially have a, um, a reawakening of an old virus um, or another possibility would be an infection with a new virus that might complement some of the activities of the older viruses. So, so these are things that are, um, you know, that, that, are, that are theoretically possible, but we don't have examples of them happening in, in humans um, uh, to date. But do we have examples of, again, an endogenized retrovirus now changing my phenotype or my offspring's phenotype, changing how we, like you said, uh, you know, the membranes of my cells uh, allow certain things in or out or other bodily functions. Like what, what function can these endogenized retroviruses take on in the progeny of the person infected? Well, I think that you could have some, um, some contributions from, uh, from viruses at both the RNA level and the protein level. Um, so um, at the RNA level, of course, we have um, functions of RNAs that, um, that, that uh, will contribute to transcriptional regulation, um, also, uh, at the post-transcriptional level, we could have uh, small RNAs, for example, that would regulate uh, translational events. Um, at the protein level, we could have uh, uh, proteins that can uh, encourage fusion, so that membrane-membrane fusion that I mentioned. Um, we, may, we may be able to shift the balance away from a, um, a more restrictive environment for EV-mediated communication to one that is more permissive um, for that communication, um, and you know why? Why would why would that be important? Well, it could be important to uh, to uh, facilitate cell to cell communication, um, to deliver functional molecules from one cell to another, 
Um, and these, these could be things that are beneficial to, um, to the host, or it could be that they are, 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 are detrimental. For example, in the case of, of certain cancers um, that may want to communicate uh, messages to each other um, or to non-cancerous cells that could be more beneficial to the cancer than, um, than, than to the host. I know I've taken you down the virus path, but I just have one more question there. Um, has science seen evidence of epigenetic marks that happen to regions where, you know, regions of endogenized retroviruses in our DNA? Because if that happened, maybe that would signal that it has some function in the body that needed up or down regulation? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I don't, I don't study endogenous retroviruses at that epigenetic level. Um, but yes, I think, I think that what you're, what you're alluding to here would be, uh, you know, the, the, the down regulation or the, or the, uh, the, the chromatin, let's, let, let's give an example of chromatin modification, um, that would keep endogenous retroviruses silenced, um, um, in, in, in most physiologic conditions, um, that, that might indicate then that you want to keep a tight rein on what those endogenous retroviruses are able to do physiologically. Um, so I think that that's a, that's, that's a very interesting question um, and one that I think uh, probably merits more investigation um, in different physiologic states. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Has anyone been able to profile, I don't know, I mean, I know EVs are really tiny, has anyone been able to profile the extent of the EVs that are put out by any given cell? Are there dozens or hundreds of kinds? And you know, how does the cell interpret the incoming EVs? And how do they know where it's coming from, what the intent is, you know, what it contains? And it just seems like a whole huge effort to not only, again, put them out with the right targeting and the right packaging, but also bring them in and interpret them and utilize them. Oh yeah, yeah. So those are all great questions, and it's a very wide variety of of of, of, uh, of questions there. So I'll try I'll try to answer here. Um, to to start with, you know, I think that uh, historically in the field there have been two main categories of vesicles that have been investigated. Um, so you know, if you you go back to the 30s, 40s, 50s um, of the last century. Um, when electron microscopy really came into the forefront and people were able to look at tissues and at uh, particles that were coming from biofluids and they were able to say, wow, they, you know, this is what a virus looks like. And here's this other thing. I mean, or maybe it's the same thing. Maybe it's a virus. Maybe it's something else. Uh, they were able to develop the concept of the extracellular vesicle by looking at these uh, electron microscope, uh, you know, micrographs. And um, it wasn't really until maybe the 1970s or so, that there was an appreciation that these vesicles could be formed um, by, by budding of, uh, of the plasma membrane. So that's the membrane that surrounds the cell. And this was, um, this was actually investigated in bacteria, in other single-celled organisms, and then also in mammalian cells and mammalian, uh, uh, other mammalian samples like, like biofluids. Um, so this, uh, this idea of budding from the surface was one, one form of, uh, of generating an extracellular vesicle. Um, the other one that, that, that came a little bit later um, was the idea of budding into uh, an internal compartment of the cell. So the endosomal compartment of the cell um, is an extensively studied um, uh, uh, subcellular compartment, set of compartments. Um, and, and one of these types of endosomes is called the multivesicular body. It's defined by these particles that are inside of it, um, that have budded into it, um, that when they are released from the cell have canonically been called exosomes. Um, and so these tend to be slightly smaller, 
than the particles that are released from the plasma membrane simply because they can't they can't be larger than the multivesicular body itself. Um, so these two, uh, let's call them biogenesis pathways, um, have been most extensively investigated. But what I find really fascinating about the field right now is that we're, we're finding that there are many types of, of vesicles that we did not appreciate before. Um, one type is called the migrosome. So this would be like an extracellular vesicle that's left behind by a cell that's crawling across a matrix. Um, another one is the large oncosome. And so some cancer cells will actually make very large partitions of their cytoplasm that then they then release. Um, these, these can be as large as uh, some other cells. And, uh, and they're defined by not having the presence of a, a functional nucleus. So these are, these are very large bodies. So, you know, we, we now know that there are EVs that range in size from about 35, 40 nanometers. That's about as small as you can make a, um, a lipid bilayer with some proteins inserted into it, all the way up to 10 microns across, um, you know, in diameter or more. So, uh, so there, there's a, you know, there's, there's a whole zoo out there that I think we're, um, we were just around the entrance, I think, for many, many years. And now we're understanding that there's a, there's, there's a lot more um, in the interior there that we can, that we can learn about. Um, so the, um, the diversity of extracellular vesicles is certainly a hot topic right now. You asked about the, um, the recognition of, of extracellular vesicles by, by cells, so by recipients. Right. Um, and this is another area that I think is, uh, is, a, is, is very important for the field um, because we would like to develop um, extracellular vesicles as therapies. And if we're going to be treating a condition with EVs, we have to, we have to know how many of our EVs are going to go to the, uh, the cell or the tissue of interest. Um, so deciphering the surface, uh, the surface comp- uh, components of EVs um, is, 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 is the, key, um, the key thing that we have to do um, to be able to deliver them. So the idea here is kind of like a, a lock and a key, right? So on the recipient cell, you might have a few different um, proteins that are displayed. And on your extracellular vesicle, you want to have complementary proteins that are displayed. So proteins that will be ligands, um, interaction partners um, of these cellular proteins, um, and, you know, I think a, a great example of how this works actually comes again from the virus field. So with human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, there is a, a set of proteins that's on the surface of the, of the virion that are encoded by HIV. Um, and so these proteins need to find binding partners on a recipient cell. Um, so one of these binding partners would be the, the CD4 uh, receptor. This is a receptor that's found on... Uh, human T lymphocytes, and then also on human monocyte lineage cells. Um, but there can't just be that one receptor. You also have to have a partner, a, a partner on the recipient cell. Um, and there are several of these um, that have been documented in HIV research. So when the virus, its proteins can interact with those, uh, those, those partner proteins on the recipient cell, only then will you have um, a close interaction of the virus with the cell to the point that you can achieve membrane fusion. Um, so um, a big part of what we as e- uh, EV researchers are trying to do today is to identify those combinations that allow EVs um, to communicate with the recipient cell and potentially be taken up by that, by that cell. What about an experiment whereby, let's say, culture liver cells and uh, you know harvest the exosomes that they produce and then 
put a whole bunch of those exosomes into a culture of, I don't know, pancreas cells and see if that induces, the, you know, the pancreas cells, let's say, uptake them and see if that induces them to produce different exosomes than they were producing before. Yeah. So, that, you know, that's one way to, um, to approach that question. You could use uh, libraries of EVs that you have produced from different cell types uh, where you know the surface composition very well. Um, and then put them onto uh, to, to recipient cells that might very well have, uh, you know, dif- different combinations of of surface receptors. Um, another another way that we can um, that we can investigate this is by doing some sort of a screening approach that involves genetic modification. So we could take a a, a, a particular cell type, um, modify its membrane protein. So we could uh, perhaps go into its genome. Um, and delete, uh, selectively delete certain uh, membrane proteins, and then observe whether uh, a, a particular EV type could exert, could still exert an effect, a known effect on that cell type. Um, and by going through our entire library of different membrane, um, membrane genes, uh, membrane proteins, we could identify those that are involved in the um, in the in the EV interaction. Right. So so we could do this at either the level of the producing cell to modify the surface of EVs, or we could do this at the level of the recipient cell uh, to modify its surface, its surface proteins um, to understand um, these, these two poles really of the interaction. Well, do we understand, let's say, you know, a cell that takes in EVs, you know, that they have to fuse with the cells that are membrane, but then where do they go? You know, do they go to certain spots within the cell and then become active? Can we even observe that? Yes. So what we know is that uh, when an EV is taken up by a cell, um, typically what will occur is not so much a surface, uh, you know, surface fusion, but rather an intake into the endosomal compartment. Um, And then if 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 the if the EV is to deliver its cargo into the cytoplasm of the cell, um, it must it must fuse with that endosomal membrane. Uh, and so this is um, this is also a, a you know a, a, key, a key thing for the, for for drug delivery. So we want to have what's known as endosomal escape. So getting out of that endosome before the endosome uh, ultimately destroys its contents for for recycling. Um, so so we um, we know what's happening with certain viruses in the endosomal compartment, and that you need some degree of acidification to achieve fusion with the uh, with the endosomal membrane. Um, but I think that we're still working out um, what needs to happen, what the, what the prerequisites are for the fusion of an EV with the endosomal membrane. You know, and it's interesting if you look at some of the literature that's out there on EVs and where they go inside the cell, um, you, can find, um, you can find some very nice images of, uh, of, of fluorescent labels. So uh, in many cases, you, you want to label your EV population somehow. Right. One way to do that is to um, is to label with a membrane dye, um, and this membrane dye would would just insert into the lipid bilayer, um, and you can then deliver the the EVs to the cell and see where that label goes. Um, and so there have been some very intriguing images of uh, of these dyes that are in um, endosomal compartments, maybe even in a perinuclear region, that seem to persist for hours or even days after delivery of the EVs. And so it's a bit of a mystery as to what exactly they're doing there. Um, does this mean that they are not uh, functioning? Um, could it be that we're just looking at the dye and the EV has gone and its cargo have gone somewhere else? Um, so that's a, that's, that's a mystery, I think, right now in the field. And we're trying to figure out what, 
um, what is happening there. But I, I, I want to bring up something else, um, which is that the delivery of cargo, like we would see with a virus, uh, may not be um, may not be necessary for for some of the functions of EVs. Um, and in fact, it could be that simple interaction of the EV with the surface, with a, a surface protein, for example, of a cell, uh, would be sufficient um, to, um, to 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 start the the cascade of effects that that that, that we know are um, occasioned by EVs. So it, it could be that the EV is more of a signaling platform um, than a delivery vehicle in, um, in 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 many of the effects that have been uh, characterized for EVs. What about, um... Where are some of the places that EVs are made within a cell? You said maybe the outer membrane will butt off, but are there other, I mean, I don't know, does like the endoplasmic reticulum make them and package them? Like, where do they come from within a cell? Well, the, you know, the classical um, uh, endosomal budding, so the uh, inward budding into the the endosome, I think, is is probably the most studied. Um, But certainly, uh, you know, I mean, I think that we, we, we know now that there are some EV populations that will have um, uh, that will, will 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 contain endosomal markers, Golgi markers, nuclear markers. Um, so, um, just because we found some of those deeper cellular markers does not necessarily mean um, that our results are wrong. It could be that that, that there very are there very well are contributions of these compartments um, to EV contents. Um, so, whether the whether the um, the the membranes um, from these different compartments are, are actually giving rise to EVs or whether there is just uh, communication of some of those, or I should say um, conveyance of some of those um, uh, uh, contents into the EVs, um, I, I think re- remains to be seen. And I don't know if this is accurate or not. I don't know how much the, the various constituents of, like, let's say the human body communicate with each other, but, you know, let's say I'm a, a liver cell and I'm making my own EVs, whatever, but I'm also, again, taking in EVs from, other liver cells, other organs, maybe outside, you know, viruses, et cetera. Like I would, I would think I would have had, I would have to have an interpretation system that would help me differentiate. Okay. This is, you know, one of my own, another liver cell that has sent me an, an EV or this is uh, maybe from the pancreas or this is from the brain or this is from, you know, a virus and interpret and know what to do with these things somehow. Yeah. So you have all these different messages that you're being bathed in, right. As a cell and, and so you have to be able to sort those messages because they can they can have uh, you know very very different results. <laughs> um, so so I I believe that one function of EVs is simply as as nutrition or we could call it uh, molecular recycling. Um, you know so so there might be certain EVs um, that are safe for the cell to take up and to recycle. Um, so you don't have to make all of your own components. You might you might come across some uh, some nice packets of molecules that you can reuse. And that might be one big function of EVs. Um, Some EVs might convey danger signals, right? So they might provoke inflammation. And so you might want to be careful about about, um, taking up too many of these. Uh, And then there are other EVs that are are genuinely conveying messages that that you need and that you want to be able to go about, um, you know, your daily business. And those... um, those vesicles then are, are ones that you really want to pay attention to. So, so it's hypothesized that uh, the different vesicle populations were, are going to have uh, different signatures on their surface that will um, distinguish between these different, um, these different end uses. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it seems just like a, a, I guess a language you'd have to know 
what to produce, how to produce it, what to take in and interpret, how to interpret it, what to do about it. I mean, it would, where do you think this orchestration comes from? So I think that it, um, you know, it really does come down to the combinations of molecules, uh, proteins for sure, but possibly others that can be displayed on the surface of EVs. And this, uh, this does lead us to a, a very big challenge in the EV field right now. Um, and that is to be able to do single vesicle profiling, phenotyping, we call it, um, deciphering what those combinations are on the EV surface. And this is actually not a trivial thing. Uh, so if we look back to uh, the 1970s, um, where immunology was back then, um, there had been a technology that was developed um, it, uh, and, and was, was first being used in the, in the 1970s um, to understand immunology. And this, this was called flow cytometry, right? So this is a technology where you could, um, you could look at different proteins that were on the surface of a cell um, and try to understand which molecules were on different cells. Um, today, uh, some of us are using a, a, a modification of flow cytometry to look at small particles. Um, we're using various technologies, actually, um, to try to do this single particle uh, profiling. And the idea here is to um, maybe, maybe take four or five markers or two or three and understand what combinations of those are on different vesicle populations um, mm. by examining vesicles at the single particle level. Uh, so I think that we're, we're, we've made a lot of progress just in the last five years in being able to do this. Um, and as we, as we move forward and as this technology becomes more sensitive, um, we're going to really be able to understand more about the true diversity of the extracellular vesicle population, much like, uh, you know, much like uh, immunology has developed over the last few decades as a result um, you know, that, that pioneering work with flow cytometry, where now we understand that there are many different subsets of our immune cells um, that previously we could not define. But now, because we're able to look at the single cell level, we know that these different types exist. Um, and so, you know, the, the, again, the challenge is just the physics um, it's, and, the, and the, the sizes that we're talking about. So if a cell is, is, is um, if, we, if we look at what, what, we can, what we can see in terms of a single cell, you know, a, a, the average extracellular vesicle might be just a millionth of the volume of that, um, of that cell or even smaller. Um, so wow. we, we need very sensitive techniques um, to be able to achieve this goal of single vesicle characterization. Huh. Um, in terms of uh, EV therapy, are there any therapies in use right now or ones that are close to, uh, I guess, going to the clinical trial level? Well, interestingly, um, there was an EV therapy that was introduced um, back in the 1980s. Um, so this was, um, this was a vaccine, actually. So um, a vaccine that was made from outer membrane vesicles of bacteria. Um, and as we, uh, as, as we look back at this history, there's, uh, there have actually been multiple vaccines now that have come out that have been made from uh, bacterial EVs. Um, we can also think about what is necessary to, um, to create other forms of therapy. So let's say we're going to make a, a cancer therapy or we're going to deliver a particular molecule to cancer cells and maybe convince them to give up. Um, how do we get enough material to be able to do this? Will we have to make these EVs from the patient cells or can we make them from some cell line? Or even better, could we use something like a, a, a bacterial system? Um, some people are using uh, vesicles from different natural sources like different foods. Um, can we produce, mass produce 
um, vesicles, you know, in the quantities that are needed um, to have um, to, ha- to have therapies that can be given to multiple individuals. Um, so, so it's um, it's always fun for me to look back at at, at this history um, of, of of EV therapy and how it can inform um, what we're what we're moving towards in the future. I guess by studying um, how EVs would you know end up entering a cell. I mean, you can learn a lot of things. You know, you can learn how to package things to get into the cell better. You know, and to uh, yeah, hmm, interesting. So what's um. <clears throat> I don't know, any particulars right now in the research that uh, are anything like super interesting that you're finding? Not that everything we talked about so far isn't super interesting. Anything yeah, well, in particular think, you're seeing that's really piquing your curiosity? I think one thing that we, um, that, that, that we haven't touched on yet is uh, how we can use vesicles in diagnosis and prognosis in medicine. Um, so so this, uh, this concept of, of, you know, a surface profile, you know, this lock and key kind of concept, um, it's not just about delivery. It's not just about therapeutics, but it's also about tracing the vesicle back to its origin. Um, so in the, in the blood, you know, I mean, we've, there's, there's, there's uh, I think you can find a lot of, of interest in the news about um, blood tests that people have developed for different cancers, for Alzheimer's disease and so on. Um, but is there some way that we could, uh, that we could develop a, um, a, a very broad screening test for different, um, different conditions, different disorders um, using extracellular vesicles, um, and, and I think the answer to that is yes. I mean, I think that we um, that, that we have a lot of opportunities now to use extracellular vesicles to understand the health of a particular cell type or a particular tissue. So, to give an example here, um, you know, my lab does a lot of work on central nervous system diseases, neurodegenerative diseases. Um, uh, you know, starting with the HIV-associated neuro- neurocognitive disorders. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we find that other neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, um, Parkinson's disease have some commonalities. Um, is there some way that we could uh, identify a population of extracellular vesicles that have come from the brain that will tell us about the health of neurons and other cells in the brain that are affected by these, um, by these diseases? Um, what this, um, the, I think what we need to be able to do that are markers that are specific for the cells of interest. And so um, to some extent, we know some of these markers today. Um, and then methods that will allow us to, uh, to capture the extracellular vesicles that display those signatures um, from, let's say, a blood sample or a saliva sample, um, and, then, and then allow us to, to really assess what's going on um, in the affected tissue. So, um, so, so this is an area where I see a lot of work going on right now. We see a lot of different technological platforms where, uh, you know, engineers, um, chemists are working together with the biologists to try to really push the envelope of what's possible. Um, and I expect that there will be some very interesting developments here um, in, in the next few years. Has anyone tried to characterize what the, um, the atom membrane of all the cell types, like in the human body, look like, you know, what proteins they have, what surface structures? Yeah, so I think there's a wealth of uh, proteomics information that's out there um, that we can use to help, uh, help, help uh, inform our biomarker searches. Um, so, so, uh, so, so certainly there's a lot of public data, um, and, and I think that there's, um, you know, there's an opportunity to, to gather even more um, so that we can look at specific compartments of the cell that might be releasing um, these EVs. Right, but the atom membrane itself of 
of all the cell types in the body. I mean, I just wonder if anyone's characterized them and looked at the differences, seen how similar and how different they are, or is that just a, a massive undertaking to do something like that? Well, I, w- I would say that there's, um, I think there's still a lot of opportunities to do this for cell subtypes. Um, for, uh, you know, the very broad uh, cell, cell uh, sorry, for the very broad cell types, I think that we, we already have a lot of information about those membrane, uh, you know, transmembrane proteins um, that, that, you know, that, that we can follow up on um, in, in our EV research. But for subtypes of cells, I think, I think there's still a lot of, um, a lot of data that can be gathered. Um, so that's a, that's a, that's, that's a, a great idea for a, research project to pursue. So if we could, if we could really map, you know, every cell in the body um, and what it's, uh, you know, what it's membrane complement would be in health and disease, that would be, that would be very useful. Even if they did it for one particular organ, you know, the brain or the heart or, you know, let's say the heart, let's say it has, I don't know, 40 cell types. If you could map all of them, I, mean, I would think you'd have a much greater understanding of how things could affect the heart and all the constituent cells of it. Yes. Yeah. So I think if you, uh, you know, if you look at, at brain, you know, the brain research, you look at the cancer atlases, um, um, you could do this for really any, any organ in the body. It is kind of a, it's a question, you know, in a very different direction, but do you think there's a EV communication between our microbiome and our somatic cells? Yeah, that's a, um, that's an area of interest as well, you know, where you have many, many organisms that are that are living in the gastrointestinal tract, for example, um, and, that are, and that we know are producing EVs. So pretty, I think every organism that we've looked at so far is making EVs of some sort or another. Um, do they communicate then with the, with the host cells? Um, there is some evidence of that. I mean, there's some evidence of, uh, of some transfer of, of, um, of uh, biologically active molecules. Um, but I think the jury is still out as to the extent, uh, the extent to which that communication is happen- happening and then also the effects of the communication. Um, and then also does the communication go in the other direction too? Um, so could, uh, for example, gut epithelial cells be releasing EVs that would, um, that would influence the growth, the behavior of, uh, of, of organisms in the microbiome? Um, so there's, uh, of, of course, with all the diversity um, in the microbiome, I think I think this is um, this this uh, you know I think that there there are a lot of a lot of questions to uh, to ask, um, and it's uh, it's sometimes difficult to to answer those questions um, by choosing the right simplified system to um, to use. Yeah, I mean it's crazy if you think about the environment that a, a you know skin cell sees. I, it, and then you look at like a gut epithelial epithelial cell, and then you look at maybe something that doesn't see very much. You know, I don't know the interior of the brain. Or you know, all these three different types of cells have a very different environment about them, and different actors and characters. You know, molecules, and it's just crazy that they could all function and somehow interpret what's going on outside of them, and you know, keep their homeostasis and keep themselves going. Yeah, if you think about the networks there, you know, all the different connections between these different species um, and where you have, you know, probably not only EV-mediated communication, but also other signaling molecules, um, there, there have been some fascinating studies that have been done in plants, for example. So you have plants uh, that can be colonized by bacteria, by certain fungi, um, and you see that this EV-mediated communication is happening in, in, in different directions there. Um, so there's there's just a wealth of opportunities now um, to understand how EVs are contributing 
to um, the environmental um, interactions of, of different species. I think, I think it's a really, um, really fascinating time to be doing research in this area. Yeah. Well, what do you think is, uh, is ahead for you in the next few years? Any um, you know, big discoveries that you feel like you're getting close to making? Well, I think, I think one of the things that we would like to do is to come up with better delivery methods um, for extracellular vesicles to, um, to, to get them into the brain. So this is one thing that, that we are working on, and I know many others are working on that too. Um, so how do we get, the, how do we get a, a therapeutic vesicle across the blood-brain barrier? Um, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's one thing that I would like to uh, get some good answers to in the next few years. Um, and, and another thing I think is the, is the biomarker angle. So what is going to be physically possible for us as far as distinguishing different subsets of EVs by their origin, by their cellular origin, um, when using a blood, a blood sample? Um, how many, uh, you know, how, how much blood are we going to need to be able to achieve um, a, a, a good diagnostic test for a, for a particular condition? Um, so, so there are, I mean, obviously many groups that are working on this. I think we've had some, um, some successes in uh, certain types of cancers, and I would like to see that extended um, into, um, in, into other diseases as well. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, for, for my lab in particular, uh, we would like to come up with ways of either uh, suppressing HIV uh, uh, production or stimulating HIV production so that the immune system can kill off the HIV-infected cells um, using extracellular vesicles um, as a means of delivering uh, uh, certain molecules. So, so I guess these are the, the areas that I would um, I hope to contribute to in the next few years. You know, what would be interesting is if you looked at the EV communication surrounding apoptosis and you could stimulate that in a population of cells with the right EVs, you know, those cells must be giving off something, letting them know in the surrounding tissues they're going to do that. But first, the surrounding tissues must be telling the cell somehow, probably with EVs, hey, it's time to commit Harry Carey there. Yeah, thought. yeah. So, you know, I think that whether you're, um, you know, uh, making sure that a cell is recognized by the immune system and eliminated or convincing the self to, uh, the, I'm sorry, convincing the cell to eliminate itself. Um, yeah, that uh, I, either of those would be a satisfactory outcome, you know, when you have a cell that is creating problems in its microenvironment. Yeah. Well, very good. I appreciate your patience and all these crazy questions. Um, what, what's the best way for listeners to find out more, you know, maybe get in touch with the lab or, you know, find papers that uh, they're interested in? Yeah, so I would just like to, um, to refer the listeners to the International Society for Extracellular Vesicles. So if you look up isev.org, that's I-S-E-V dot O-R-G, um, you can find a, a lot of information about EVs, um, including links to two uh, massive online open courses. So we have a very basic course, and then we have one that's, uh, that's uh, more focused on different... Um, different functions of EVs and health and disease. Um, and so these are, 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 have been widely subscribed to. A lot of people have taken them and they're free to take. Um, and then there's also a journal um, that's devoted to the field, the Journal of Extracellular Vesicles, um, or JEV, um, that, uh, of course, publishes uh, uh, scientific, scientific papers about extracellular vesicles. Um, also on the ISEV.org website, you'll find um, a, a link to an animation that's been made. Uh, that's kind of an introduction to the field. Um, you can watch that on YouTube, and there's also a high-definition uh, version that you can watch in kind of virtual reality. Um, so this uh, th this website, I think, will give you a lot of information 
um, about EVs at both the introductory level and at deeper levels. Excellent. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Ken, thank you for coming. It's been a great call. I appreciate it. Great to talk with you. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.